Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your discipleship into the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. We also have our very fine intern, Gretchen, from the University of St. Thomas, joining us in studio today. She's learning the ropes of the soundboard, so delighted to have Gretchen with us. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at the same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes of the Bridge Builder, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Each week on the show, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that build the bridge between faith and public life. On today's show, we're talking about the intersection of philosophy, science, and technology, and the moral dilemmas our culture is creating and how Christians can respond in both politics and culture. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about voting when it seems that like there is no good option, that both candidates are noxious, and it's like voting for the lesser of two evils. What do you do in those situations? And finally, stick around for the Bricklayer segment. We have a great opportunity for listeners, especially clergy, educators, and lay ministry leaders to hear from leading Catholic voices on how the church can confront racism in our day. We're now joined on the line by Dr. Michael Hanby. He is Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family at the Catholic University of America. Dr. Hanby writes broadly on questions at the intersection of theology and philosophy, science and technology and culture, and he's been writing some very, very important pieces as of late on uh, everything from Supreme Court decisions to the limitations of politics and what it can and can't do. We're delighted to have Dr. Michael Hanby on The Bridge Builder this morning. Dr. Hanby, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. That's fascinating. I think people uh, would be surprised by the, the line of scholarly inquiry at the intersection of philosophy, science, and technology. How did you come to this area of research, and why is the John Paul II Institute dedicated a, a, a position and a, a professorship to these sorts of questions? Well, the John Paul II Institute, I'll start there, um, is deeply interested in the question of, of culture uh, and the logic of our culture and, and the receptivity or not of our culture uh, to the gospel. Uh, and that, therefore, commits us to a really wide uh, range of concern. It's a very exciting place to work and a very exciting place to study. Uh, from you know deep metaphysical questions uh, to questions on marriage and family narrowly conceived to uh, questions of politics and philosophy of science, basically the very structure of, of, of reality. We're concerned with, with all of it. Uh, and individually or, or autobiographically, I suppose, um, you know, I didn't set out at the beginning of my studies or the beginning of my career to write and study and think about all of these things. It just kind of evolved. Uh, and I began to see logical connections between different facets of our life, that religion um, and the life of faith can't be confined to one narrow compartment, separate from the way we organize our society or the way we understand nature. And um, I began to see logical connections between the ways we understand all of those things in our culture and, and to try to unravel some of that. 
you said a word there that really stood out for me, which was reality. And it seems uh, as we talk about questions and make statements in our society, like my truth is this and that, um, that we've lost a sense of reality. How, how receptive are we to reality as a gift to be received and stewarded as opposed to a world in which uh, it seems, especially in your line of thinking and inquiry, that, you know, the technology has shaped how we view things, that we can simply manipulate reality and manipulate the raw material of creation to, in fact, create our own reality. So unpack that idea of reality for us. What do you mean when you say use that term and and what, how are people approaching that in our culture today? Well, I mean, you're, you're, the, the first part of your question was how receptive we are to it, and the answer, you know, quite obviously seems to be not, not very. Um, uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. There, there, are, there is built uh, deeply into our political culture the idea that an order that we ourselves do not make uh, that precedes us, uh, that shapes us prior to our decisions, is a burden and somehow oppressive uh, and needs to be overcome. A very similar idea, it seems to me, takes place in the, in the technical and scientific fields, where we measure the truth of our ideas by their practical success, by our ability to repeat experiments or to manipulate, as you put it, the raw materials of nature in this or that way. Um, and so the idea that the most basic stuff, if you will, or the most basic sort of foundation of our existence is not an order that is given to us and into which we are received, but rather possibility, something we can make or create, uh, is an idea that permeates all of uh, modern life in the West and in the United States, it seems to be. I mean, politically, we think that way. Uh, Our sciences operate that way. And it's really a question of really whether the world does precede us, whether there are recognizable things with uh, built-in meaning and purposes and goods that they can realize by acting a certain way in which they can frustrate or, or, or do violence to themselves by acting in other ways. Uh, that seems to be the idea that it is at odds both with our scientific conception of truth and our political conception of freedom. Technology seems more and more to be shaping our perceptions of reality. How do Catholics evaluate technological advancements, and how do we think about the role technology plays in our culture? That's a really uh, good and, and, and deep question. We could spend the rest of the interview probably talking about it. Um, I think the first thing is to, is to get the question right and to understand what kind of question it is. I mean, there is always an ineliminable moral dimension to the question, you know, whether a certain technology is licit or illicit. Uh, whether it can be used for for good or bad ends, and so on and so forth. And those questions are important, and we should continue to ask them, especially in a biotechnical field and in with medical and bioengineering advances that, frankly, move faster than we can think about. But I think uh, there's a more basic and more fundamental question than whether technology is good or bad or what our stance should be toward this or that technology, and it is namely what technology and its modern technology in its essence is and how it shapes us. And what I've tried to argue in a lot of my writings is uh, that it is in a certain sense, and I think this is also, by the way, a, a dimension of Pope Francis's Laudato Si when he talks about the technocratic paradigm. Um, it is a way of viewing the world. It is a way of apprehending and relating to reality. 
Uh, it is a way of understanding both the world outside of us and increasingly the way we understand ourselves and our own bodies as kind of manipulable matter. And in that sense, it, technology is both a kind of theory of knowledge, but it's also a kind of way of thinking about what things are, essentially mechanical artifacts that can be manipulated. And in both of those senses, technology and the technological mindset, as Laudato Si also argues, runs very deeply within us in ways that we probably most of the time aren't even aware of. Um, and then, of course, there is a, a second level uh, at which this question applies, and that's the question about what being completely submerged in a technological culture, what being completely sort of driven, you know, riding the waves of technological advance and progress and being shaped by by our devices, being shaped by the fact that we now have smartphones as prosthetic attachments that are with us all the time and they're interposing themselves between us and the world, What's, what that's doing to us. So it's a, it's a vast question that you ask with uh, a lot of different dimensions waiting to be thought through. But that's, those are at least uh, an indication of, 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 of how I tend to think about it. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Hanby. He is Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family. Dr. Hanby, building on that idea a little bit, we've gotten to the point now in our culture where we think that technology can even allow us to change our sexes, as, as uh, crazy as that may have seemed just even a few years ago. You authored a brief along with a bunch of other scholars, a friend of the court brief, as the U.S. Supreme Court was considering adding gender identity as a protected class under our civil rights laws in the context of the workplace. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, gender identity was now a protected class in our civil rights laws, and you wrote a brief about uh, the implications of that. What are the implications of that decision? It seems like people on the on the surface say, well, no one should simply suffer workplace discrimination because of their gender identity dysphoria or their gender dysphoria or some of the challenges they're facing. But your argument was that this is going to have a building this into law was going to have a host of implications for uh, our law and our culture. Just unpack that a little bit for us. What are the implications of that decision? Sure. Well, first, I want to commend you either for being in incredibly perceptive or for really doing your homework, because as you yourself point out, most of the time uh, this is understood primarily within the register of, uh, of, of civil rights and competing rights claims. And your question perceived that, in fact, uh, this is the outgrowth of, uh, in some ways, in some very deep ways, of technological developments in the sense both of um, in both senses that I discussed earlier, um, the, the idea of regarding our bodies simply as matter to be manipulated, uh, but also in the sense of acquiring the technical capacity to manipulate. Would transgenderism, for example, be the public preoccupation that it is uh, had we not developed pharmacological and sur surgical techniques that allow us to believe we can transform men into women and, and, and vice versa? Also, you know, in, in the area of same-sex marriage, I've argued that same-sex marriage would have been inconceivable were it not for the rise of assisted reproductive technologies and the various possibilities for giving children to different groups of people that uh, those technologies make possible. So in, in, in both of those senses, I think these decisions have technological revolution lying behind them, and they are in some ways the legal outworking of what these technologies have made possible. 
As far as the implications are concerned, the one perhaps most immediate and closest to home is simply the fact that the recognition that, you know, in the terminology of the court, uh, that an employee uh, who originally presented as a man now presents as a woman, the fact that social organizations are going to be effectively required to affirm that is true imposes a burden on everyone to affirm as true for all public and practical purposes what most of us intuitively know to be false. That's one implication. But a second implication is unaddressed in most of the commentary that you see on this has to do with precisely this technological dimension. Normalizing both same-sex marriage on the one hand and transgender identities on the other hand will inevitably normalize the various kinds of technologies and, in fact, involve the state in the proliferation of those technologies that are necessary to make those things possible. So you already are seeing, for example, in marriage law, a movement to require assisted reproductive technologies as part of health insurance plans for same-sex couples. And, and, you, and you get some real tortured language. I mean, we now... There's now a distinction in the legal literature between the structurally infertile and the medically infertile to make two things which are very different seem as if they are the same. You can expect that with the normalization of the transgender view of the human being, we're going to have much greater normalization of the various medical procedures necessary to bring that about. Indeed, and in fact mandated when people ask for those by healthcare professionals. Yes. So, yes. And, and then the conflicts course, with you know, conscience that those could... You know, children suing their parents, for example, um, over access to uh, hormone blockers and, and, and various things. You're absolutely right. Dr. Hamby, one of the most compelling things I found in the brief that you and the other scholars uh, r- produced and, dist- and sent to the court was the idea that the imposition of gender identity ideology through the mechanism of law, would really undermine the idea that we have a common human nature. And I've just been thinking about the implications of that, especially, you know, when we think about and and believe truly that things are connected and we're having conversations about race and racism today and things like that. Unpack that a little bit for us, too, that uh, this idea that, um, the re- you know, getting back to our first question, discussion about reality, that the, the importance of undergirding in law the reality of a common human nature is is important. And this is going to have a host of implications on that front as well. Yeah, well, our our argument in, in the brief, both in the brief and in a, a, an editorial that we uh, produced in the Wall Street Journal after the Bostock um, decision was, was announced, was that in effect, what the Supreme Court um, is doing, or has done, um, is to install, in fact, a new philosophy of human nature uh, for um, all public and practical and legal purposes in which uh, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity are only arbitrarily related to the physical reality of being a man or a woman. Um, So on the one hand, there is... Uh, the negation, if you will, or the the, um, the the destruction in thought and in law of uh, the conception of human nature in which um, the men and women are psychosomatic wholes. On the one hand, that's 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 correct. On the other hand, 
uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And in the place of uh, of the reality of men and women is uh, is a new uh, concept that is more assumed and taken for granted uh, than argued for. But one of the places where you see uh, this this um, negation of our common human nature, which is also really uh, the the negation of, of, a, of a world in common, really, a, a world that we all inhabit, that we can all recognize, that our language refers to, that makes it possible for us to reason together um, as members of a common reality. One of the places where you see this uh, most obviously is the war on language, right? The war on pronouns, on the use of, uh, you know, the, the ideological effort to uh, to restructure the the, the, the language uh, for in, in line with this new philosophy, um, uh, to reshape thought by the reshaping of language, uh, which is, um, I, I think, um, totalitarian in its logic. But it is um, it is very much an assault on on the world that we have in common and on um, our ability to reason together and to cohere together as a society. You can't you can't attack something as fundamental as the reality of of man and woman, um, which, by the way, is uh, not a particularly religious idea. The idea that, that the reality of men and women are a matter of faith is 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 a quite new and ideological one. You can't some, attack something as fundamental as that without touching everything else. You know, the the, the you're going to have to transform language, morality, law, education, um, etc. People have used terms like liquid modernity, the acid of modernity, post-modernity, all kinds of uh, terms like that to, I think, reflect the sort of disintegration of different concepts that have ordered civilization for a long time. And and what we're seeing uh, step into that, it seems to me, is, uh, as you said, nature abhors a vacuum. So what we're seeing is the return of old ideologies and heresies under new forms. Uh, stepping in to take that place. But it it's, seems to be compelling some to say, well, the the premises of liberal modernity are outmoded. They've been proven to uh, are proven to not be workable in a practical effect. And that this vacuum that's created by a, a coherent conception of the good is just going to leave the place for stronger ideologies that are antithetical to Catholic and Christian values. And some are turning it to politics. Uh, some call it integralism. Uh, perhaps as a way of responding to this, but in a very fine essay in The Lamp, in the forthcoming issue of The Lamp, um, you've warned against this, and I think making a helpful distinction about uh, power and authority, the distinction between those two concepts. How do Catholics respond to this disintegration we see around us, this liquid modernity? Politics can't be the only answer, as you've argued, so what do we do? I wish I had, uh, I wish I was more confident in my answer to that question. I mean, the the future is, is so uncertain, and the changes in the, uh, that are coming upon us uh, are so vast and are accelerating so rapidly. And, um, and that's before one even factors you know, COVID into the equation. Who saw that coming? But I think the first thing, I mean, I mean part of my, uh, you know, I wrote a, a piece of first things uh, entitled uh, For and Against Integralism, and I, I took both the for and against uh, uh Quite seriously, uh, the integralists themselves didn't uh, seem to think I was uh, I, I was very much for it. But I do think that uh, the 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 integration of spiritual and temporal order and the subordination of the lower to the higher is an abs- is an essential 
is an essential truth. Um, there are great obstacles to our doing that. My objection, I suppose, uh, to, to the integralists is that, that particularly in these historical circumstances, this is not in the first instance uh, political. Uh, it, it, it is something, uh, and, and, and frankly, a political integration of any serious kind is, doesn't seem to be available to us under the political conditions that we live in. To me, the, the, the first task more fundamentally is, 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 is intellectual and, uh, and spiritual. We have lost uh, a vision of reality uh, that, or we are in danger of losing a vision of reality that um, really, you know, defined, uh, has defined the West from Rome um, and, and Greece, from Greece and Rome onwards. Uh, you can consider it broadly uh, platonic, uh, though it comes to be subsumed within a Christian understanding of creation, and all of those are, are, are at risk. We have to begin to see the world and to understand the world uh, uh, differently, and that's an enormous labor. But the first place, it seems to me, or one of the first places we can begin is, is by calling things by their proper names. And that means taking a, a, a quite critical stance towards uh, some of the disintegrating movements that you've talked about that are being enforced in the media and inscribed into law. And um, to call things by the proper name, we have to, you know, we have to, to read and think and study and, and it's, it's an enormous labor that's going to take generations. Dr. Hanby, I think people are looking for resources, spiritual and theological or intellectual to uh, think about and confront the challenges that we're facing. Where can intellectually serious Christians go uh, for good resources? What should we be reading right now and, and thinking about? Where can we go for good uh, resources to get the tools in our toolbox to address and think about some of these important questions of the day? Oh, gosh. There have to be innumerable answers to that question. I'll, st- I'll start with the Old Testament as our survival guide, but be- <laughs> but beyond that, where else should where else should yeah, we well, go? You know, the the, uh, the the and the Bible as a whole is not a bad uh, uh, recommendation. You know, I do think that you know we have a wealth of teachings in the pontificates of uh, John Paul the Second and Benedict the Sixteenth that have scarcely been mined. I mean, it's going to take a. a a great long time, I think, to, to, to plumb the depths of that, and, and, and of course the, the speed at which things move both in the Church and, and outside the Church make that kind of time and patience difficult. I mean, I think uh, both had a, a, a keen sense of the extent to which the very concept of, of, of the human person is under assault in the modern world, and by the time Benedict XVI resigned, this assault had taken new forms. I mean, the, the things that are now manifesting themselves in the Bostock decision, uh, the ascendance of, of, of transgenderism as a social and political force had begun to to take shape. And his virtually his, his last words as Pope in a little talk he gave to the Roman Curia, I believe in December of what would that have been? 2012. Yeah, uh, if, I'm, if I'm right about that, is is virtually prophetic. And there are a lot of promising young scholars out there that one can just uh, uh, happen upon, I suppose. 
We've been blessed today to be joined by Dr. Michael Hanby. He's Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family at the Catholic University of America. I think I can say that he's one of the Church's uh, foremost thought leaders. Today, you can find his writing in First Things, The Lamp, and The Wall Street Journal, among other places. Dr. Hanby, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Blessings on your work, and we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump in to the mailbag segment. Kit, what's in today's mailbox? Yeah, so this week's question comes from a student who is preparing to vote in her first election, but it's also definitely a question that many Catholics seem to have during the election season. Her question is, what can I do if both candidates don't support my religious beliefs? Well, first of all, you can't expect a candidate to support your religious beliefs because those are your religious beliefs, but you can expect candidates to, or you can hope for candidates who uphold certain human values and certain important values in the public square. And sometimes it's, we're presented with two candidates who don't do those things, and we have to make choices about who we're going to vote for. And it's re- reasonable to ask sometimes which candidate will do less damage to human dignity and the common good and make that choice accordingly. That's perfectly reasonable to do. And sometimes that's uh, what uh, principled voting requires. Oftentimes, though, it might lead you to vote for a third-party candidate, and that's certainly a legitimate option. It's not a wasted vote. It's a vote out of principle. Um, Hopefully you can find a third-party candidate who has values that are more consistent uh, with those by either from either the major party candidates, and that's becoming, sadly, more and more a phenomenon today. Even not voting in certain very limited circumstances might be the prudent and principal thing to do and itself a form of witness. So the key thing is to form your conscience, uh, know what the right principles and values are, and then evaluate candidates based on those relevant principles. And sometimes it's not just choosing the better candidate, it's choosing the lesser of two evils, and that's just part of the voting calculus sometime. Great. Thanks, Jason. And before we go, we always want to leave our listeners with some practical takeaways, ways that they can start building the bridge between faith and public life. So what do you have in this week's Bricklayer segment? Well, again, that formation piece, how do we confront issues? How do we sometimes think about issues that we haven't thought about before? And more and more, uh, as we are uh, dealing with the aftermath of uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and then the global reverberations that that has had, uh, people thinking about racism, perhaps in a ways they haven't uh, before, or encountering that issue and thinking about it for the first time. I've heard that from multiple people. Uh, and people are really struggling with this. What do we do? How do we think about it? How does the church respond? You know, fascinatingly, I think people don't often forget that the church is the most re- diverse religious organization uh, culturally and ethnically, uh, both locally, nationally, and internationally. Um, we should be able to step into this moment uh, precisely because of our experience in multicultural work, our anti-racism within our own community. But at the same time, uh, as we were talking about with Dr. Hanby earlier, that understanding of a, a common humanity based in our uh, fatherhood of common father of God and the, the fact that we are all brothers and sisters and the fact that we have a common human nature as created in the image and likeness of God. So we're going to jump into that at our Wednesday, September 9th Zoom seminar, Open Wide Our Hearts, 
the Catholic Church Confronts Racism. This is being sponsored by the Minnesota Catholic Conference. It features Bishop Shelton Fobb uh, from Louisiana, who will give the keynote address. He is the leader of the U.S. Bishop's Ad Hoc Committee to Fight Racism. But we'll also have a distinguished panel of uh, speakers as well who will bring their perspective on this issue and various assets or facets of the church's life today, schools, the culture, the parish. How do we confront racism and uphold the dignity of the human person? You can find out more about that seminar and register via Zoom at mncatholic.org. Again, mncatholic.org slash open wide our hearts. Um, you'll find more information right on our website about that webinar for Wednesday, September 9th from 10 to noon. That's all the time we have today on The Bridge Builder. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes by visiting us at mncatholic.org or send us your questions to our mailbag via show at mncatholic.org or show at mncatholic.org. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions in a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference and for our producer, Kit Cross, and very tough fine intern, Gretchen, from the University of St. Thomas. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Take care.